Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm Nicole Gurren. I'm the uh, Professor in Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney here at the School of Architecture, Design and Planning. And I, along with um, colleague Samrita Sarkar, head up the Urban Housing Lab at the University of Sydney. I'm very pleased to welcome you here tonight to this event. And before we get started, I'd like to pay and acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and of course it is upon their unceded ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And I'd also like to acknowledge as we move into this very important topic around health and housing that this is a topic that of course has particular significance uh, to the first Australians, many of whom have a legacy of very poor and unhealthy housing conditions. Welcome to this Sydney Ideas event. The, uh, the Sydney Ideas program, which I'm delighted to be part of tonight, is the university's flagship public talks program, as many of you might know. And it's also the first event of the Sydney offshoot of the Festival of Urbanism, the 2019 Festival of Urbanism, which is now in its sixth year. Of course, the Festival of Urbanism is the main public outreach event. There's a number of public outreach events sponsored by the Henry Halloran Trust, but the festival uh, is the main one where we get together for a week in Sydney and a week uh, in Melbourne. And of course, the Henry Halloran Trust is a research trust funded through the generous support of Warren Halloran. I'm going to dive straight into it. There's probably not more of a significant research agenda and actually under-researched and under-addressed in policy terms than housing and health. And so I want us to get straight into our three fantastic speakers. I'm going to introduce them all to you. They're each going to give you a presentation and then we'll move over for some questions and answers. And there will be plenty of time for the audience to ask questions as well. So as the speakers move through their presentations, be ready with the questions that you might have. Our first speaker this evening is Dr. David Jacobs, who's from the US National Center for Healthy Housing. He's chief scientist at the National Center for Healthy Housing and he's been working in the healthy home space for many years with a special focus on lead contamination. David ran the Healthy Homes Program at the US National Government Agency Housing and Urban Development, which many people will have heard of. He was the author of several chapters of the recent World Health Organization guidelines on housing and health. Luke, Associate Professor Luke Nibbs from the University of Queensland is an Associate Professor of Environmental Health. He joined the School of Public Health in 2012 and he conducts research and, and teaching on the health effects of, and of environmental risk factors. He's got a special interest in understanding the burden of disease due to anthropogenic air pollution and transmission of respiratory pathogens. And last, but definitely not least, Dr Jennifer Kent, 
our own University of Sydney Research Fellow at the School of Architecture, Planning and Design in the Urban, Urban and Regional Planning Program who, prior to joining us, worked at the University of New South Wales and Macquarie University. She's well known for her research on health and accessibility and her commentary. In fact, I might direct you to a conversa conversation article out now. And she also recently this year released Planning Australia's Healthy Built Environments, um, a book that I recommend to you all. It has become an instant classic. Now, David is going to be our first speaker, followed by Luke and then Jen. So, David, can I welcome you up? Thank you so much for coming out this evening. It's a pleasure to journey so far, but be so warmly welcomed uh, by the Australians that I've met uh, to date. Um, what I want to talk to you today about is that these two worlds have been divided uh, in recent years. And it's if you think about it, these are the two major parts of our e economy. They're gigantic, right? Healthcare and housing. They've been divided, but it's time to think about how we close that divide. <clears throat> So this is not really a new concept, is it? Uh, the, my take-home message for you is, let me back up. Uh, it makes no sense, does it? If you have a child with an asthma attack, and you'll hear about asthma from our future speaker, we send them to the hospital, we give them steroids, we treat his symptoms, only to return them to the home that maybe triggered his asthma attack in the first place if it has cockroach allergens or mold asthma triggers and the like. Um, so we need to think beyond and understand how to bring these two worlds together. It's not a new idea. The only reason we have housing laws, really, is because of public health issues. At the turn of the last century, we had rampant epidemics of tuberculosis, typhoid, and cholera. And in those days, housing and health were joined at the hip. Uh, they launched the sanitation movement. And in, in addition to better medicine, it made a change to our housing stock. That was something that we all take for granted now. What is it? Anyone tell me? Indoor plumbing, right? And the potable water that comes from it. That's what the sanitation movement was about. So the lesson from that experience was that if we join these two worlds, uh, we can achieve major benefits in improved housing as well as improved health. Now, the, what happened, though, in the intervening years was those two worlds went their own separate ways. The medical profession became more treatment-oriented. In other words, we'll wait for you to get sick, and then we'll treat you. Or the housing world became more like financially oriented in the sense that uh, purchasing a home was a way to build your wealth and your security and old age and the like. So in my view, it wasn't really in the U.S. anyway until the 1970s when the lead poisoning epidemic kind of was re-understood uh, re that we understood we had to connect these two worlds. So Florence Nightingale had this observation many years ago. Uh, the connection between health and the dwelling is one of the most important that exists. Um, so these are the WHO guidelines, and I, maybe you can't see the, in fact, I can hardly see it myself, <laughs> the infographic. But the point is that uh, healthy housing is becoming much more important in light of uh, urban growth. Our, our cities around the world, are, our population is becoming more concentrated in the urban areas. We're getting older, so that means our housing is, stock is going to have to change. And we're going to think about making houses more resilient uh, to climate change and so forth. So there's lots of opportunities to promote health and housing. 
We can eliminate toxic materials such as asbestos or lead paint. Uh, we can think about overcrowding. Uh, in fact, I was reading the, I, swear, I think it's the Morning Herald today. Did you all see that article maybe? And uh, there was, there was, it was about densification, but it was a talk about some of your students probably from the university. It talked about student housing and how uh, some property owners don't allow you to use the kitchen because there are too many mattresses in the kitchen. So crowding is, uh, is an area that the World Health Organization guidelines address, along with indoor air pollution from stoves and other sources of as, and the temperature, accessibility, and home injury hazards, which is the chapter that I authored, as well as stressors like noise. So this is a global problem. Uh, one third of all injuries occur in the home. And in 2016, half of all unintentional injury deaths were also in the home environment. We had nearly 4 million deaths from household air pollution, mainly from the use of charcoal and solid fuels in cooking, mostly in lower and middle income countries. In Australia, we know that nearly 8% of childhood asthma is attributable to damp housing, and 12% is related to unvented gas stoves and the contaminants that it releases. We know that in Europe, uh, lack of window guards and, and, and falls and smoke, lack of smoke detectors are responsible for nearly 8,000 deaths. And approximately 10% of hospital emissions per year uh, is due to crowding, overcrowding in New Zealand. Now, this is very much a global problem. Uh, we have a, this is probably old data now, but at least a billion dollars, uh, a billion people live in slum housing. Uh, we have many migrants, uh, both legal and illegal migrants. And in India, they reported a collapse of over 2,700 buildings uh, from structural uh, defects. And in Kyrgyzstan, again, we're seeing a rise in tuberculosis due to crowding. Uh, finally, uh, nearly uh, uh, 900,000 premature deaths in 2013 due to worldwide exposure to lead, mainly from cardiovascular uh, issues associated with early childhood uh, lead exposure. So these are the, key, the nine key principles of healthy homes that we articulate. If you do these nine things, you will achieve multiple health benefits. So keeping it dry, clean, ventilated, pest-free, safe and accessible, contaminant-free, maintained and affordable, and thermally controlled, it basically enables us to think of housing as a system, as an integrated system. Um, so, what the guidelines are about is translating research into practice. There are systematic reviews of the scientific literature. Um, I should emphasize probably that getting a guideline out of the WHO is not a simple matter. Uh, the evidence has to be pretty overwhelming before they can make a recommendation. Um, so these are the kinds of uh, reviews of the evidence that we did. We looked at structural deficiencies and how they related to slips or falls, accessibility for the disabled and elderly people causing injuries and stress and isolation. Uh, insecure and non-affordable housing leading to stress, uh, insulation or lack of insulation leading to respiratory and cardiovascular problems, uh, high indoor temperatures, indoor air pollution, uh, crowded housing leading to infectious diseases, and, and the like. So these are the recommendations in a nutshell. Um, there are many other areas that are covered in the guidelines, but uh, we make basically make a strong recommendation about crowding. Uh, another strong recommendation regarding how indoor cold and insulation. You'll see that some of these are conditional regarding heat, uh, primarily because most of the research has been done in exterior environments, not specifically in housing. So that's a clear uh, research need. Um, 
home safety uh, and injury hazards, uh, things like carbon monoxide alarms, stair gates, window guards. These are all integrated packages that can be brought together to reduce uh, injuries. And then accessibility uh, is also a strong recommendation because we know, again, our population is aging and we need to make sure that people who have disabilities are able to uh, function fully. So these are, I'm not going to go through these in detail, but to point out that, I mean, some of you will probably ask, do we really have to research whether we need to know whether we should have uh, carbon monoxide or smoke alarms or, or a safety plan? Um, it's sort of like the randomized controlled trial of parachute jumping. Have you ever heard that one? Which one of you would like to be in that control group? You're the ones without the parachute. Right? So, but they're actually, in this case, there actually have been randomized control trials for injury prevention, and they, these sorts of things uh, do work. So uh, the slides will be available on the website, but in the interest of time and so that we can have time for questions, I'm going to... Uh, uh, go through these quickly here. There are uh, finally some important co-benefits that if we improve uh, health and housing, we if we improve thermal uh, insulation, for example, we'll basically lower the expenditures on energy and we'll reduce carbon emissions. And in this era of climate change uh, or climate disruption, I guess we should call it, that's particularly important. So these co-benefits shouldn't be minimized. Similarly, if we reduce crowding, uh, we know that that will contribute to improved education outcomes because children will be able to study more effectively and won't be distracted by uh, too much activity in the home. Improving thermal comfort, we know, through installing insulation and heating reduces days off from school and work, uh, an, an economic benefit. And improving housing can also create jobs and stimulate investment. So there's an economic benefit as well. Uh, in 2009, the Surgeon General in my country, the U.S., issued a call to action, which is a big deal in my country. That's how we started the whole anti-tobacco work in the 1960s. But basically, this is their definition. Uh, it's, it's cited. That means it's located properly. It's designed, built, renovated, and maintained in ways that not only prevent disease, but actually support good health of the residents. This is a, a model code, a housing code that we've released with two former HUD secretaries a couple years ago. It's written as a code so that it can be enforced by housing code inspectors. Um, it, notice it was released um, not only by HUD, by housing secretaries, but by the American Public Health Association. It used to be that codes were written by uh, health people. And in the intervening years, it's been more towards the uh, housing engineer type. Um, this is a study I did in Chicago. Um, we have a cool acronym, right? I was going to get my students to wear capes to say the mighty study, but they nixed me on the, uh, on the cape idea. But it is basically looking at uh, two groups of people, uh, people who moved into public housing that had been rehabilitated using uh, green methods and, uh, and others. So uh, these are the results of that study. We saw that housing conditions and self-reported physical and mental health improved in a statistically significant fashion. Uh, we saw improvements in hay fever, headaches, sinusitis, angina. Asthma severity is measured through lost school and work days. And importantly, mental health improvements. We saw improvements in sadness, nervousness, restlessness, and child behavior. Uh, there's a certain group of um, public housing. Uh, this is the Breathe Easy Homes in Seattle. 
that showed that uh, we achieved symptom-free days of about five days out of every two-week period were symptom-free. Uh, the amount of uh, trips to the emergency room declined by 41%. Uh, emergency room visits are really expensive. So better housing yielded a direct health benefit and a cost reduction. Um, so, and, and in conclusion, we need to reestablish this collaboration between the built environment and health. These are some of the key players that you could think about, but I'm sure there are, in fact, many others. So take a closer look at this and see where you fit in and help us to reestablish this vital link. The time is now to address this problem. Housing and health are really flip sides of the same coin, just as they were 200 years ago. Healthcare reform and affordable housing are very much on the agenda back in the United States, and I know that just looking at the paper here, these are questions here. Global slum housing, oh, but these guy, WHO guidelines were launched in Uganda. Uh, and the mayor of Kampala showed up and said, we haven't even thought about how we're going to build the massive amount of new housing that we're going to need for our burgeoning population. And then, as I mentioned, climate and sustainability are key factors of this. So, in the words of uh, German philosopher Johann Goethe, uh, it's not just to, enough to know about doing something. We need to do the research, but you have to apply what you know. And then being willing isn't enough to do it. You actually have to do something with that knowledge to make a difference in in the world. So, thank you. That's where you can find me. And I look forward to the conversation. Thank you, David. And I'll invite Luke up to the stage. Okay, thanks very much, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm very honoured to be speaking this evening and speaking after David, whose work I'm very interested in, and hopefully will segue nicely into what I'm going to talk about now. So I'm actually born and raised in, in Sydney, and it's really great to be back here at my uh, alma mater, University of Sydney, and I'm very pleased to be part of this important event on such an important issue. So I've been in Brisbane for about the last decade, so you could probably say I'm a reformed Sydney-sider, maybe, who saw the light managed to escape north of the border and I actually find now I enjoy Sydney a lot more as a tourist or a visitor <coughs> mainly because I don't have to deal with all the things that we're talking about tonight like urban sprawl, traffic pollution, long commutes, unaffordable and uh, unsustainable housing. This chart shows how time is spent on average for an Australian adult over the course of a full week. And this is based on a number of repeated Australian Bureau of Statistics surveys. And you'll see highlighted in purple that about 70% of time is spent indoors at home. That's the average across the adult population. Some people spend a bit more time at home. Some people spend a bit less time at home. But overall, the variability is, is quite small. And no matter which way we slice up this data or this pie chart, indoors at home is where we spend the bulk of our time. And you can imagine that there's some groups of the population that might spend considerably more time indoors at home. So infants and young children, for example, uh, particularly in the preschool years before they go off to school, uh, as well as elderly people and people with chronic diseases. And all of those groups are potentially more susceptible to the effects of things indoors. So Australians, we like to think of ourselves as being pretty active, 
active, pretty outdoorsy population living in these quite amenable, pleasant climates. But the stark fact here is that we spend 70%, give or take, of our lives indoors at home. And the overwhelming majority of the remainder of that time we spend in some other indoor environment like school or the workplace or a university lecture theatre. So it's a confronting stat in many ways and I hope I haven't depressed everyone right off the bat but it's true and I think it underscores just how important the home environment is when we're thinking about health. So this is a really nice diagram from the US EPA that shows some of the many and varied sources of indoor air pollution in a typical home. A little bit similar to the one David showed, but more focused on air pollution. Uh, so this shows a freestanding home, obviously, but it applies equally to most apartments or townhouses too. So the pollutants that I'm talking about here can be chemicals like carbon monoxide, uh, or it could be biological air pollutants like animal dander from pets, uh, as well as mould as well. And I think looking at this diagram, the main thing to take away from it is that outdoor sources are important and can affect what we're exposed to indoors. So outdoor air pollution, for example, can get from the outside to the inside if we allow it to do so through an open window. Or even if we don't open a window, it might leak into the house. The same is also true of outdoor moisture as well. But in the scheme of things, there's a, actually a very large number of indoor sources of pollution that we might not always be that aware of here. And those outnumber the number of outdoor sources in many cases. So this is a study that we did last year, um, and it's one example of many Australian studies on indoor air and health. I've picked this one, obviously, because I can speak directly to it, but I'm happy to direct anyone who's interested to all the great work that's been done in the uh, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s by others. Uh, so in this study, we were really interested in how much childhood asthma, uh, both new cases and exacerbation of existing asthma, is linked to persistent dampness, persistently damp homes, uh, and also gas stove emissions. And we picked those, or we were interested in those, because they're very common. There's also a, a large body of high-quality research that indicates that there's an association between those two things and childhood asthma. And perhaps most importantly, uh, there are ways to potentially reduce our exposure, i.e., in other words, that they might be amenable to some intervention to reduce the b total burden of disease. So this diagram here shows some of the main findings, and there's a bit going on here, but I'll, I'll walk you through it. So first of all, we estimated that about 26.1% of children, Australian children, live in homes that have persistent dampness problems, and about 38% of children are exposed to gas stove emissions at home. <laughs> Excuse me. So the number on the horizontal axis here is what's called a, a PAF or a population attributable fraction. Don't worry about that because it's just a fancy way of saying what proportion of asthma we estimate is specifically due to dampness and gas stoves as distinct from all other causes of 
childhood asthma. Now, the red line in the middle of each of these graphs shows the average estimate for each of the two indoor exposures, and those pale blue lines out to the right and left are the confidence intervals. So that's the likely range that we would expect the true average, which we don't know, but we're trying to estimate, to fall in 95% of the time. And it's basically a, a way of quantifying the uncertainty in our estimates here. So looking at the left-hand figure first, our best estimate was that on average about 8% of asthma in Australian children was due to dampness and that the true value is probably somewhere between 3.2 and 12.6%. Same thing for the right-hand figure. Our best estimate was that 12.3% of asthma was due to gas stoves and that the true value is probably somewhere between 8.9 and 15.8%. So there's a few caveats on how we interpret this. I think the best way to think of it and the way I try to think of it is this is how much asthma could be averted if we hypothetically had no homes with dampness problems or no homes with gas stove emissions. So the feasibility of those sorts of measures is something quite separate and it's something that I'll come back to in just a minute. So what are the, some of the challenges that we have for healthy housing in Australia? Well, it's a big place. You know, we've got a big continent, a big landmass, and we span many different climates. So because of that, residential building and energy efficiency performance requirements are separated into these different climate zones that you see on the left there. And they're each quite specific and might have different effects on indoor air. Then we have a, a mix, a constantly changing mix of existing versus new buildings, which have different effects on indoor air pollution in their own right. So old houses like this Queenslander here, typical of the houses where I live in, in Brisbane, uh, are known to be very leaky. They're not very airtight. Air gets in every which way. Uh, and when it's windy like it is today, you can feel gusts of air coming up through the floorboards because they're raised up high. It's a classical style in that part of Australia. That's not so good for outdoor pollutants. That actually helps outdoor pollutants into the house. But if we have an indoor source of pollution, like a gas stove or a fire place, all of that leakage can actually be a beneficial thing, something that we wouldn't get in a newer home, which we also see here, where you have the sort of opposite issue. We're making these houses too airtight to stop the outdoor air getting in can lead to problems if you have a large number of indoor sources. So the other thing that we have is a mixture of freestanding dwellings and apartments, particularly in big places like Sydney. And uh, that's an additional factor that might determine what we're exposed to. So many apartments might have a range hood over the stove because that can be a useful way to vent all those cooking fumes and gas products potentially outside. But in most apartments, they're not connected to any sort of ducting. They just recycle the air. And if you're my height, I've lived in apartments where it's just at the right height to blow all of the smoke right into your eyes while you're cooking because they just recycle it into the room. That's not particularly effective. Uh, and there's also differences as far as renting versus owning and whether a person has direct control over what's in the indoor environment. And you can imagine it might not be easy to go and install a, uh, a range hood in a place that you're renting. You know, you need to get things signed off in triplicate just to put a few pictures on the walls. So the levels of indoor air pollutants in Australia, you might be surprised to know, are actually not regulated or legislated. Outdoor air pollution is, but indoor air pollution isn't. And health is not explicitly included in the existing standards and legislation for residential buildings. 
So just as one quick example of a potential health benefit that we might be able to realise quite simply, this is the same graph that we saw earlier, but this time we've assumed hypothetically that every home that has a gas stove also had a range hood that captured all of those gas products with high efficiency. And the 12.3% contribution to childhood asthma was reduced to 3.4% with a relatively simple and moderately priced intervention. So this curve shifts to the left. And perhaps those range hoods would cost around $1,000 to buy and install in each home, um, but they would avert about 9% of asthma due to gas stoves. And compare that against the potential cost to an individual child, their family, as well as the healthcare system over the course of a year, and asthma costs $7 billion a year, childhood asthma in Australia, not to mention over the course of a lifetime, suddenly the, the cost of the range hood is looking pretty good by comparison as a preventive healthcare measure. So just to finish up with a final slide, I'll finish to the theme, returning to the theme of the discussion. These are some ideas for ways to improve health at the population level by reducing indoor air pollution. And they've mapped here against their sort of initial dollar cost uh, from left to right, as well as effectiveness or potential effectiveness from the bottom to the top. Um, this is an imprecise exercise and, you know, there's more evidence for some of these things than others. And these are just my particular, particular thoughts about where they sit on this diagram. But I think it's a template to start thinking about where to focus our efforts in this area. So low cost options that offer some benefit are things that anyone can do, although the benefit does need to be carefully considered before pursuing them. So thinking about things like moving a dryer from the occupied part of the house maybe to an unoccupied part of the house or connecting it to a vent so it's not blowing all that humid air back into the living part of the house. Um, I've put non-profit organisations that can fill roles across R&D and capacity building here. So David, as he mentioned, he's from the US National Centre for Healthy Housing. And I think, isn't it great that they actually have such an organisation in the US? And my own completely biased opinion is that we absolutely need to have something similar here. So I guess the key takeaway from all of this is that we can all contribute and realise potential benefits both in our own home um, and, and more widely collectively. And that's a great thing, obviously, but like so many things in public health and other aspects of life, I think the greatest impact will definitely require both individual and government-led initiatives here. So on that note, I'd like to thank you all for your uh, attention and the organisers for inviting me here. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Nicole, uh, David and Luke. It's great to be here uh, tonight talk, speaking to you all. So different to the first two speakers, I'm an urban planner rather than a public health professional, but just highlighting the fact that these two disciplines are increasingly working together. My research is all about the links between urban planning and health. Uh, what I want to start by pointing out though is here in Australia we actually have what I call a sick care system rather than a healthcare system. Our healthcare system is really great at looking after people once they're actually unwell rather than thinking about ways that we can prevent people from becoming unwell in the first place. Last year we spent about $180 billion on health and any, anybody have any idea about how much of that was dedicated to preventative health services? <laughs> 
it was 3%. So the majority of our budget goes to looking after people once they're actually unwell. And I want you to keep that figure in mind. This is even more disturbing when we think about the diseases that are impacting our communities and costing us a lot of money are actually all very much related to the way that we live. They're called lifestyle diseases and that indicates that there is a degree of prevention that could be put in place, small tweaks that we could be making to the way that we live that could have a big impact on the diseases that are being experienced. Things like heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, kidney diseases, the main risk factors for these main diseases are things like physical inactivity, poor diet, obesity and hypertension. And the reason that I, as a planner, am really interested in these particular things is because those risk factors, physical inactivity, poor diet, etc., are very much linked to the way that we live in urban areas. Our cities shape the way that we live, so it makes sense that our cities have a lot to do with these lifestyle diseases. Now, a few years ago, I was very interested in this idea and I was working at the UNSW's um, Healthy Built Environments program and we did a large literature review on ways that built environment can be can influence health. So what we were trying to do was think of ideas that urban planets, of ways that urban planners specifically could influence human health. And we focused on some of those key risk factors and came up with three domains of urban design, of urban planning and health. They were that good urban planning can get people physically active, good urban planning can connect and strengthen communities, and good urban planning can provide access to healthy food. So these are the really obvious links, I think, between the way we live in cities and human health. When we think about the ways that good urban planning can get people physically active, one of the key things that comes to mind is active transport. So we know from the health research that if we can link physical activity to another type of activity in our lives, in this case the need to get from A to B, we're more likely to keep up that activity than if we say go and join a gym or something like that. Now how can we encourage active transport in cities? The main thing that we need to do is decrease the distances between commonly accessed uses. So if we think about uh, the main distance that people will walk uh, to access something that they really want to access, like a, a big public transport in interchange, is about 800 metres to one kilometre. The main distance that people will ride, it's a bit more variable, between about five and ten kilometres. If the, the destinations that we need to access in our day-to-day -day lives are further apart than that, then we start to look to other modes to fill those destinations. And in cities where the public transport system is not fantastic and we're very much accustomed to the flexibility and autonomy of the private car, that's usually defaulting to the private car for transport purposes. So the main thing that we need to do is start to look to decrease the distances between commonly accessed uses in our cities. I'm talking about things like home, school, work, shops, services, etc. If we want people to be work, walking to those things, they need to be within about a one kilometre radius of where people are living. How do we decrease distances in our cities? The main answer is actually densification. Now that comes with a lot of risks in itself as we're starting to see uh, a lot of problems with building defects and so forth is, is one of the risks associated with, with densification. But uh, be, until we densify our cities and do 
uh, stop sort of urban sprawl out on our outskirts, we're not going to decrease those distances between users and encourage people to use active transport. Design is also very important. The devil is in the detail with a lot of active transport networks. I should have mentioned before, actually, when I say active transport, I'm talking mostly about walking and cycling, but also public transport. The research says that people who use public transport over private car use actually get more physical activity in their day-to-day lives because they need to walk to be able to access and egress the station and their destination. So design is super important. Uh, When I'm talking about design, I mean things like footpath design, shared pathway design, making sure that shared pathways and footpaths are safe, legible, that they're connected, that they're uh, adequate enough for people to use. Destinations are also very important, so making sure people have somewhere to walk and cycle to. Diversity is important, not having swathes of residential uses uninterrupted by shop services and workplaces. And there's also a lot that urban planning can do with demand management. And when I talk about demand, I'm mainly talking about parking. Good urban planning can also encourage healthy eating. This is about providing people to have walkable access to the foods that, that that can make up the ingredients of a healthy meal. We know from the research that we tend to eat what is what we're exposed to. So if our neighbourhoods are made up of fast food outlets, that's what we're going to defer to to eat. If we have a small-scale supermarket within walkable distance, we're more likely to get the ingredients for a healthy meal and take it home and cook. Good urban planning can also encourage healthy eating by encouraging urban agriculture, community gardens, and by protecting peri-urban agricultural lands. There's a lot that we can do to ensure people have affordable access to affordable healthy food. Good urban planning can also connect and strengthen communities. So a disconnected community is very much related to a lot of different illnesses that we're, we're that I'm talking about. Um, if we don't feel safe in our environment, we're less likely to be out and out about being physically active. We're less likely to have the kind of incidental social interactions that are very important for mental health. By providing people with spaces in which to connect with their communities that feel safe, that are plentiful, plentiful, that are within walking distance of where people live, by making sure that these spaces are tension-free, by ensuring that they're adequate and well-maintained, we can ensure that people have opportunities for incidental interactions or more planned interactions with the community around them. Now, these are some of they're, they're some of the sort of more obvious links between urban planning and some of those health risk factors like physical inactivity and unhealthy eating. But there's a lot that urban planning as a process can also do uh, to encourage health. And I'm going to touch very briefly on some of those things now. So the first thing is looking at the way that the planning system is implicated in equity in a society. Now, when I say equity, I'm talking about equity of outcome, not just equity of access. Equity of access is the kind of mentality that we seem to have in Australia at the moment where we're trying to provide everybody with access to the same amount of um, infrastructure and so forth, whereas equity of outcome actually looks at the different community and looks at what that community needs, goes into the community and provides that on a needs basis. 
So why is equity important for health? Um, There is a fundamental correlation between equity and health. The research shows time and time again where the space between rich and poor is huge, we have more and more health problems. So the more equitable a society is, the healthier society is. That's a a given, it's, it's been proven in the research time and time again. Equity is also important for health because it questions this fundamental notion of the responsibility of the individual. So it's very easy to sort of say that some of the health issues that I'm talking about, physical inactivity, unhealthy eating, they're individual choices that people are making. Whereas if we position equity as our outcome, then we start to look at the way that society shapes individual choices. Equity, where a focus on equity also fosters respect for diversity. Looking at different communities and what they need is something that is required by a healthy community. Now, how planning can promote equity, I don't actually have time to do this justice here, but I did have a piece come out in the conversation last Friday on this um, called Working the System, Three Ways Planners Can Define the Odds to Promote Good Health for All of Us. So some of the details of how planning can promote equity are covered in that. One of the key things that urban planners can do, though, is to reveal inequities. So urban planners know where the inequities are across the city. You ask an urban planner, at the Department of Education where the crowded schools are, they'll be able to tell you straight away. You ask a transport planner working for City Rail which train is always overcrowded and which train is is not on time, they'll be able to tell you that. So urban planning can reveal the equities and reveal the places where we need to go to be able to provide the infrastructure that's important for good health. Understanding diversity is another fundamental of healthy planning that I think we need to pay more attention to. So diversity in a community is a source of strength and we need to foster diversity. And good urban planning can foster diversity in several ways. So it can give people a voice. Good urban planning can talk to different communities and bring out what those communities need for their health, for encouraging people to engage in the kind of behaviours that I'm talking about. Good urban planning can also provide for uh, tension-free interactions. So if we don't have adequate spaces, open spaces, for example, for people to be physically active in, if people don't know how to behave in those spaces because they're not well-signed, because they're not well-designed or legible, then they become sites of tension rather than sites of community where people feel safe and um, are engaged in the behaviour that they're doing. Good urban planning can also mirror diversity. So going into communities again and looking at what those communities need and responding to that need is a fundamental tenant of what I call healthy urban planning. Now the final uh, fundamental of healthy urban planning is this idea of slowing down our speeded up world. Our planning system has become so driven by the need to be time competitive. There's lots of different reasons for that, but that is actually having fundamental impacts on our ability to provide healthy built environments in a lot of different ways. Um, From an individual perspective though, we need to allow people to have time to slow down as well. So these healthy behaviours that I'm talking about, things like physical inactivity and healthy eating, the the time available to source the ingredients for a fresh and healthy meal and to go home and prepare that, 
health takes time. And if we don't allow people to have time in their day-to-day lives to nurture themselves and nourish themselves, then we're really uh, in, in trouble when it comes to trying to encourage some of these behaviours. And this has been proven in the research that lack of time is actually a health risk factor. Um, and it's got a socioeconomic gradient, just like so many of the other health uh, problems that we're talking about. Um, how can good urban planning provide people with the time that there is required for health behaviour? One of the things that comes to mind, because my research focus is the way that city structure influences the amount of time that we spend travelling. So if we think about commute times, if we have average commute times that are creeping up in Sydney to around 45 minutes, and that ranges from people with the super commutes of around 90 minutes one way each day, that erodes our time and our energy available to uh, participate in other healthy behaviours. So this is about providing jobs housing balance. It's where housing affordability becomes so important, enabling people the opportunity to live close to where they work if they choose to do that, um, and enabling people to not spend time, a lot of time travelling to other activities. Again, it comes back to the whole densification issue that I was talking about earlier. Um, but when we conceptualise these things as fundamental to human health, that ability to give people back the time that they require to be healthy becomes all the more important. It's not only about time availability in our cities, though. It's also about making sure our cities are predictable, that they run to a certain timetable and that people have that predictability around to shape the other routines in their lives. If we don't give these pe- give people these things of time availability and predictability, it's very difficult to expect them to engage in healthy behaviours like physical, and acti- physical activity and healthy eating using the, the open spaces that we're providing them with the active transport networks and so forth. So I'll leave it there for now. A lot of these ideas are covered in a book that I've just released um, called Planning Australia's Healthy Built Environments. If you do want to discuss any of it further though, my contact details are here and I'm looking forward to answering questions. Thank you. Well, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to leave it there. Let me sum up in 10 words or less. From David, I learned that affordable housing is a health issue. From Luke, I learned that we can fix things quite easily once we have an evidence base. There's actually very easy implementable strategies. And from Jen, I learned that the things that we know are good planning and that we might be tempted to think are luxuries are actually of fundamental importance to public health. So those are three fantastic lessons. All I need to do now is thank our speakers and welcome you outside for refreshments. And thanks to the audience for your great questions and engagement. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.